Israel and the U.S. government have been partners in conducting endless war, endless attacks against the Iranian government, military, economic, and diplomatic attacks. Today, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about Iran's reaction. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please show your support for this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can do this show with you, but not without you. We are joined today by Professor Mohammed Morandi. Mohammed is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. Mohammed. Welcome back. Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. Mohammed, I'm looking at a New York Times article from last week. Of course, this article comes after the Vienna talks where the U.S. and Iran were having what was described as indirect discussions. Iran would not meet directly with the United States on the issue of the U.S. re-entry into the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal, as it's known here in the Western media. Here's the headline of the article. I want to read the headline in a couple of sentences, and then I want to get your reaction. Here it is. Iran rattled as Israel repeatedly strikes key targets. Subtitle. Recent attacks suggest that Israel has a clandestine network inside Iran and that Iranian security services have been powerless to break it. Here's the first sentences. In less than nine months, an assassin on a motorbike fatally shot an Al-Qaeda commander given refuge in Tehran. Iran's chief nuclear scientist was machine gunned on a country road. And two separate mysterious explosions rocked a key Iranian nuclear facility in the desert, striking the heart of the country's efforts to enrich uranium. The steady drumbeat of attacks which intelligence officials said were carried out by Israel, highlighted the seeming ease with which Israeli intelligence was able to reach deep inside Iran's borders and repeatedly strike its most heavily guarded targets, often with the help of turncoat Iranians. Now, the article goes on, Mohammed, to talk about two decades of sabotage and assassinations by Israel and with the support or directed by the United States. But the point of the article, the theme of the article, is that Iran is suffering from embarrassing security lapses. There's not really any discussion either of a technical, literary, or emotive character that describes these acts as terrorism, as a violation of Iranian sovereignty, as unprovoked acts of war, none of that. It's all about Iran's apparent weakness in the face of these attacks. So if the shoe was on the other foot, for instance, if the article was about Iranian assassinations or sabotage or covert operations inside of Israel, 
it would have all been about the immorality and the devilish character of the Iranian government. That's not the theme. But anyway, I want to get your thoughts about the timing of this article, uh, the theme of the article, and what is, in fact, actually happening inside Iran, and how Iranians, in particular, perceive these endless attacks by the U.S. and by Israel. Yes, well, I think the first thing that I should point out is that these attacks against Iran and Iranians are not being carried out by one regime. It's not the Israeli regime versus the Iranian people or the Iranian government. It is a host of Western countries that have been giving the regime intelligence through different means. And it's also the fact that, unfortunately, Western embassies in Iran, some Western embassies at least, there's even a history of IAEA officials that have passed on intelligence to Western intelligence agencies that have then passed them on to the Israeli regime. And that's how the Iranians believe that the four scientists that were murdered about a decade ago, that's how they were murdered and that the IAEA was involved or people within the IAEA were involved in passing on intelligence to Western intelligence agencies that led to the Israelis carrying out these attacks. And the Israeli regime uses MEK terrorists. These MEK terrorists, it's an organization that fought alongside Saddam Hussein against Iran during the 1980s. And then they began working for the Americans, and they're based in Albania. There are thousands of them there. So the Israelis use them to carry out the attacks, these American-funded terrorists. And also, the Iranian intelligence believes that during previous attacks, the Israeli regime used American military bases that are around Iran, that surround Iran, as well as diplomatic centers belonging to the United States for logistical purposes. So when we look at all that together, I think actually the Iranians have done a pretty good job in protecting themselves. When you look at it, the sheer number of governments that have been helping the Israeli regime against Iran. And the interesting thing is, of course, the fact that the New York Times seems to be gloating. And instead of, as you rightly point out, instead of pointing out that the Israeli regime is carrying out illegal murders and acts of terror, that they seem to be gloating that the Israeli regime can carry out such attacks, which, of course, is an exaggeration. I mean, the Iranians are definitely not rattled. I mean, this is one of the paradoxes of the narrative on Iran in the West. On the one hand, Iran is rattled, Iran is weak, Iran is paranoid. But on the other hand, Iran is a rising threat and Iran is a danger to the region, if not the world. And that's a very strange paradox that the Western media and Western governments like to promote. And that includes the New York Times. But obviously, the Iranians have shown themselves to be quite capable of defending themselves. The Israelis have been hitting Iranian ships, and now Israeli ships are being hit in response. And the Israeli regime, while they repeatedly carry out airstrikes in Syria, and they claim that they're targeting Iranians, but they've failed to give the name of a single Iranian over the last few years, the last three, four years, that has been killed in any of these airstrikes. The reason is because the Israelis don't kill Iranians, they kill Syrian soldiers, soldiers that are fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda. But the Western media likes to mimic what the Israeli regime is saying, 
because they support the apartheid regime. This whole wokeness that we see in the United States has nothing to do with anything that goes beyond U.S. borders. When it comes to Iran, this hierarchy of humanity and civilization is very much in place. Yeah, that's such an important point. And, you know, the New York Times is considered within the broader range of the American media, American corporate-owned, capitalist-owned media, to be one of the liberal papers, say, compared to, say, Fox News outlets or some of the others. And it's so important for people to recognize how they really are, what they really stand for, the truly deeply imperialist character of this media. And I think it's so important about wokeness because you'll read through, if you go through the New York Times, you'll see all kinds of articles about sensitivity to this or that real issue that exists for people. The New York Times has a sort of a fine-tuned sensitivity in that area. But here I'm looking at the New York Times from shortly after the 1953 coup led by the CIA, by Kermit Roosevelt, in concert with British intelligence after Britain and the United States imposed sanctions on Iran back then against the Mossadegh government when it dared to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, later known as BP, for the crime of having nationalized Iran's oil to help Iranians overcome poverty and the legacy of foreign domination the government was targeted for overthrow and it was demonized. If you look at the language used by the American media and the government against that government, the government that was there between 50 and 53, a democratically elected government, a so-called secular government, same demonizing colorful language. Here's what the New York Times wrote after the coup and after the American-British counter-revolution that put the Shah, the dictator, on the throne in Iran. New York Times wrote, quote, Underdeveloped countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid by one of their number, which goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. Again, this is after Iran nationalized its oil company. The term fanatical nationalism. Now, Mozak Day was not a religious leader. He wasn't part of the Islamic Republic in Iran. But the same language, the same demonizing, caricaturing language of fanaticism employed. And here you have the CIA, the very liberal CIA saying, ah, you all, all of you in the third world, in the developing world, you have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid. And when we're talking, Mohammed, about the heavy cost, I think most Americans don't know what the New York Times is talking about, but it's not simply the toppling of the leadership. I mean, there was a heavy price that was paid by the Iranian people then and for decades afterwards. Absolutely. I think this is very revealing that it really doesn't matter whether it's the Islamic Republic of Iran or whether it's Nicaragua or whether it's Cuba or whether it's Venezuela or Syria. What is important is that the United States wants complete domination, and so do its allies. And any country, whether it's Iran or Venezuela or Brazil, if these countries want to have an independent foreign policy, if they want to have control over their internal economic policies, the United States will find that unacceptable. If Iran, if the Islamic Republic of Iran's leaders were obedient 
to the United States. Do you think that any of these narratives against Iran being extremist and radical and irrational and dangerous and backward, do you think any of these would exist? Definitely not. But in truth, what we've been seeing over the last four decades is how Iran has been misrepresented willfully, how Iran has been demonized willfully, simply because the Iranian people have decided to make their own decisions inside the country, to have their decisions made in Tehran rather than in Washington, to have their own indigenous values involved in constructing their own country. And that is completely unacceptable for the United States. Wokeness has no place for these liberals when it comes to Palestine. Iran's policy towards Palestine is exactly the same as Iran's policy towards apartheid in South Africa. And that was that Iran opposed apartheid in South Africa, saw it as illegitimate, and said it will not accept South Africa as a legitimate state until apartheid ends. And Iran's policy towards Israel has been the same thing. But during apartheid in South Africa, Western democracies, so-called democracies, they supported apartheid. They called the ANC and Nelson Mandela terrorists, especially the United States. Mandela was a terrorist, according to U.S. law, even after he became president, even after his presidency came to an end. And the same is true today in Palestine. So the irony is that while the Iranians are opposing apartheid, in Palestine, while the Iranians are opposing colonialism and subjugation and hierarchy in Palestine, it is being demonized as being berserk, irrational, zealous, dangerous, and so on by the liberal media in the United States. Instead of the liberal media actually speaking of Iran in positive terms, that Iran is opposed to apartheid, it is depicting Iran as the exact opposite. And even progressives in the United States, and I mean mainstream progressives, those in Congress, those who are close to power, they will not say anything opposed. They will speak about wokeness, but they will not say anything about what's going on in our part of the region, especially in Palestine. Yeah, that's so, so important. Mohammed. one of the things that the U.S. has obviously hoped to do by imposing all of these sanctions on Iran by diplomatically isolating it, by working in concert with the Israeli government to sabotage Iran and to keep Iran always on its back foot. In other words, a sort of full court press against Iran. All of that is because because Iran had a revolution against the monarchy. The monarchy which the United States says, well, we're for a democratic society, we're for a Republican form of government, but it really doesn't matter what the form of government is. It could be secular, it could be religious, it could be a military dictatorship, it could be a parliamentary system. As long as the government, the core government of a country does the bidding of U.S. imperialism, then it's fine. And when the U.S. has a government that doesn't do the bidding, which has independence, as you're saying, regardless of the form, regardless of whether the government's a religious government or a socialist government or it says it's a communist government or whatever, the form of government actually doesn't matter. The real issue is what the relationship of the government is to the U.S. government, meaning does that government allow U.S. corporations, U.S. banks, the U.S. military, the U.S. intelligence services to sort of have the run of the place? And that really is Iran's sin. Iran's sin 
was it became independent. And, you know, when I'm thinking back, also talking about liberals, I was reading a little while ago, Big New Brzezinski's book. He was the national security advisor for our audience's sake during the Carter administration. At the time of the Iranian revolution in 1979, in the year leading up to it, during a time when there was, you know, severe massacres against peaceful protesters by the Shah at the urging of the United States. And Big New Brzezinski's sort of memoirs, his main criticism of the Shah was that the Shah was weak, that he wasn't strong enough. I mean, really, I'm telling people should really go and look at that book. I think it's called Power and Principles. The Principles is just a throw in. Power and Principles, and they're angry with the Shah for not killing more Iranians. And as a consequence, they start to give up on the Shah. But let's go back. It seemed to me back then, and I was involved in the anti-war movement, I was involved, had been involved through the whole 1970s with the Iranian Student Association. We were having protests whenever the Shah or the Shah's wife were in the United States. Very, very long demonstrations, I might add. They usually lasted 12, 15, 16 hours. But, you know, there was a big movement, but that was the criticism of Zbigniew Brzezinski, where people in America who cared about justice were supporting Iranians fighting against the Shah and the torturous regime and Savak and the whole thing. But just talk about what the Shah actually did do to the Iranian people and why the Iranian people, in spite of that, prevailed in this people's revolution. Well, the Shah was sort of like what we see today in Saudi Arabia. He was an absolute monarch. And while we had a parliament, the parliament was just a parliament in name. It really didn't have any influence. The country was sort of run like Saudi Arabia, where the country ex exported huge amounts of oil and imported huge amounts of American weaponry. And the ruling family was extremely corrupt. They had palaces in all of the major cities and palaces abroad, and a lot of their wealth was taken to the United States, actually, during the revolution itself. The Shah was very brutal. His Savak, his secret police, was trained by the CIA, and uh, many people died in prison. But probably his worst sin was that he was subservient to the United States. As I said earlier, the, the decisions for Iran were not made in Tehran. They were made in the United States. In fact, one of the ironies is that Iran spent a lot of money on its nuclear program during the Shah's time. And the reason was because the United States wanted Iran to purchase nuclear power plants for the sake of its own companies and Western companies. And the Shah did that. And when, you know, after the revolution, the government, the Islamic Republic of Iran, wanted to continue with that investment because already many billions had been spent. Yet, the Americans blocked Iran from continuing with their program. So the problem, as you rightly point out, is that the American government did not accept the decision-making process to be made in Tehran, in the capital. And that's what makes Iran somewhat unique from any other country in the world, except for China and Russia. I don't think you can really name another country that is outside the U.S. camp that really makes its own decisions regardless of what the United States says. I would like to add here that the Iranians, contrary to what many Americans think, do not define themselves in opposition to the United States. It is because of U.S. policy 
that the Iranians are in this position. Ayatollah Khomeini himself during the revolution says if the United States behaves like a normal country, we can continue to have ties. But the United States constantly meddled in the internal affairs of the country, tried to overthrow the revolution. Then the United States supported Saddam Hussein and Western countries gave him chemical weapons. After the war, the Iranians actually gave a U.S. oil company back then called Conoco an oil field. That was a sign by Tehran to ease tensions. But the United States, after two years of negotiations between Conoco and the Iranian Ministry of Oil, the United States sanctioned Iran. And then the United States asked Iran also to help with its hostages in Lebanon. Back then there was no Hezbollah. So Iran had to go to Lebanon and find these hostages and negotiate and free them. The Americans, they didn't do what they promised in return. Or when the Iranians cooperated over Afghanistan after 9-11, the United States subsequently and immediately called Iran, you know, part of the axis of evil. So it's that sort of behavior from the United States that makes Iran and Iranians wary. Even now, is carrying out a maximum pressure campaign under Biden as COVID-19 continues to severely harm ordinary Iranians. So Trump and Biden are not different for Iranians. Biden wants to get new concessions, the same thing that Trump wanted. The United States negotiated a deal with Iran. Instead of abiding by its commitments, the United States wants more. That's what Trump wanted. As long as it was Trump, the liberals were outraged. Now that it's Biden, the liberals are fine with the U.S. not abiding by its commitments and demanding new concessions from Iran. Yes. So just again, to emphasize your point, it was the United States that encouraged Iran to build a civilian nuclear energy program during the time of the Shah after the CIA put the monarch back on the throne in 1953. He denationalized the oil once again. The British and the Americans kind of divvied it up between British and American oil companies. And the U.S. was promoting nuclear technology. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have it in front of me, but I think the U.S. helped or worked with the Shah to build as many as 26 nuclear facilities in Iran. But as soon as Iran became independent, then the idea that Iran could have nuclear power was a sign that the whole world should shake in its boots. And again, Iran's government has done nothing to invade other countries, occupy other countries. I mean, when you compare Iran's policies with its neighbors and you compare what the United States has done, which is to not only set up 800 military bases all over the world, and obviously these bases are not defensive bases because, you know, let's face it, the last time the U.S., you know, mainland was invaded was the War of 1812, which, you know, was 209 years ago. These are aggressive, offensive things. And moreover, the U.S. has bombed Iraq, invaded Iraq in 1991, shortly created no-fly zone, invaded Afghanistan, invaded Iraq once again, destroyed the Libyan government. When you just look at it, if people could take off the filters that have been created by the American media to just look objectively at what the track record is between Iran and the United States or the United States and Israel in comparison to Iran, I mean, it's pretty glaring. It's pretty stark. And it shows 
that Iran is the victim of aggression, but not an aggressor. Yes, but this is not something that you will ever see in the Western media, or at least the mainstream media, and especially the New York Times, will never say anything like that. It was 20 nuclear power plants that were supposed to be built during the Shah's reign. And back then, it was supposed to be a very great thing, and it was going to make a lot of money for Western and American companies and businesses. So as long as it's an obedient regime, and the United States is for it and supports it, then, you know, that particular policy is fine. But if the government changes, then everything changes, as you point out. And remember, this is during the Carter years. And Carter is the, uh, among American presidents, he's known to be an advocate of human rights. But it was during his presidency that the United States was not only supporting the Shah, during the revolution, but almost simultaneously, the U.S. government was doing the same thing in Nicaragua when the Sandinistas were overthrowing the despotic regime. The United States was supporting the despots. And Brzezinski, that you point out about what he said with regards to the Shah and that he was weak, and presumably that meant that he was unable to, you know, stand up against the people and kill more people. But, you know, another thing that he spoke of, and I'm sure you know about as well as I, was that he was the person who devised a policy to lure the Soviet Union into Afghanistan. So, you know, some people think that the United States government supported the so-called Mujahideen, which later turned into the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, against the Soviet invasion, where in fact, what really happened was that the Carter administration devise a policy to lure the Soviet Union into Afghanistan to create a Vietnam for the Soviet Union. So, you know, the crimes that were committed in Afghanistan, all the blood that was spilled, the roots of it came about during the Carter years. Mohammed, just a couple more quick questions, but this one is important. I'm looking at numerous media sources. This is a story from about two weeks ago. Iran-China sign long-term economic deal. The deal between Iran and China is more of a, quote, roadmap than a specific deal. This is in I'll monitor. I'll read a couple sentences. Iran and China signed an agreement for long-term economic cooperation over the weekend that had been in the works for years. The deal gives China a stronger presence in one of the most populous countries in the Middle East and gives Iran a lifeline as it continues to battle U.S. economic sanctions. The signing by the foreign ministers of Iran and China created a stir, both on social media and regular news outlets, so much so that Iranian media outlets wrote a number of explanations and clarifications. Now, in the U.S. media, the deal was presented as something like a $400 billion trade agreement that stretched out over a decade. It was considered a big news because, at least in the American corporate-owned media, it was signaling that Iran had found one specific way to avoid the economic sanctions, one way to avoid the U.S. attempt to economically strangle the country. But anyway, oh, it's not a 10-year plan. I think it's a 25-year-long strategic cooperation pact. Anyway, do you know more about the deal and also how it's perceived inside of Iran by Iranian people? 
Well, U.S. and Western media outlets like BBC Persian, BOA Persian, have been promoting a very anti-China agenda, a very racist anti-China agenda, by the way, in their Persian language services. The same is true with Deutsche Welle. But the Iranians are expanding ties with China, and the Chinese are expanding ties with Iran, and Iran is expanding ties with Russia, and the same is true with Russia and Iran. I mean, Russia is also expanding ties with Iran. The reason is largely because of U.S. policy. The United States itself is encouraging countries to move closer to each other to protect themselves against the United States. The United States in the Ukraine is supporting the neo-Nazis indirectly, and it's trying to expand NATO onto Russia's borders and demonize Russia, and it increases sanctions on Russia. That encourages Russia to move towards Iran and China. And, you know, with the trade war against China and antagonizing the antagonization of China among American media and the sanctions and the trade war that pushes China towards Iran. And so I think this is just a natural phenomenon, especially since the global economy is tilting towards Asia anyway. So the American government has brought about this situation through its own stupidity and through its own arrogance. And for Iran, the reason why Iran signed the JCPOA was A, to prove that the propaganda against Iran and the claims that Iran was trying to build a nuclear weapon were false, and B, it was to normalize ties with Western countries to decrease tensions in the region and to create a better environment for trade and development. But the Americans don't want that. So when the door to Europe and the United States is closed, why shouldn't Iran negotiate with people or countries that have open doors? Final question, Mohammed, and thank you. I know it's very late where you are. This is maybe a silly question in a way, but Iran is a big country. It's very large. It's very complex politically. It's got many different political trends and tendencies and factions. It is, in fact, a robust democracy, differently organized than the U.S., but certainly not a dictatorship as the U.S. would try to portray it in the Western media and in the imagery. So I know it's a complex question, but I'm wondering if you could, in a broader sense, give us a sense of what the mood is like in Iran in response to these constant attacks that we started this interview about, the U.S.-Israeli attacks, the fact that the U.S. tore up the JCPOA and now Biden says, yeah, I want to come back, but you, Iran, have to give us more. The fact that Iran is finding other partners from major players, meaning Russia and China. Just what's the mood? What's the perception? Obviously, there's a big, important election that's coming up in 2021. If you could, in just a minute or two, give us a sense of what you perceive the mood, at least, say, in comparison to where it was two or three years ago. Well, first of all, with regards to democracy, another paradox that we see in the Western media and Western governments is, on the one hand, why they say that Iran has no democracy, yet, on the other hand, they're constantly concerned about who's going to win the next election, whether it's you know parliamentary elections or presidential elections or so on. So if there's no democracy, then why the concern about who gains power? This has been, you know, this paradox has existed for a very long time. So obviously there's something wrong with the Western narrative, just like the other narrative of Iran being, you know, paranoid and rattled and on the one hand, yet a rising threat and menace on the other. 
But I would say that what has happened is that just like during Obama, initially, many, many Iranians, not necessarily the majority, but many Iranians were optimistic about Obama. But then Obama himself imposed a maximum pressure campaign against Iran, sanctioning ordinary Irans with what he called crippling sanctions, which were not very different from Trump's brutal sanctions, because that's what Trump called them. And now we see the same thing. Many Iranians, not most Iranians, I think, were skeptical when Biden came to power. But a segment of Iranians thought that Biden would you know, remove the Trump sanctions and that he would move towards normality. But in reality, so far, he has been imposing the very same sanctions that Trump has imposed. And that means that he is continuing to kill ordinary Iranians, preventing Iranians from carrying out trade, purchasing medicine and supplies that are needed in the country. So I think that basically what Biden has done is that he has, you know, among that segment of Iranian society that wanted to give him a chance, he has shown them to be very similar to previous American leaders. We were joined today by Professor Mohammed Morandi. Professor Morandi is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. We thank him very much. And of course, we will continue to keep our eyes on U.S.-Iran relations, U.S. intervention in the Middle East, and the strategy of U.S. military and foreign policy. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>